So let's say you're pretty sure that your kid's an addict. The grades are failing. They're not acting like themselves. Money's gone missing out of your wallet. Everything that would point to there's a problem with drugs or alcohol or both. What then should parents do? Getting them involved in a program. Should you send them to rehab? No, no. If they're no, no, not if they're if they're just smoking weed, don't send them to rehab. See, so the the problem is if a kid who just smokes weed goes to rehab, he meets people there that don't smoke weed. They do heroin. They do meth. They know like they use needles. So he goes to rehab if he truly is an addict. He's gonna hear about all these you know things about heroin and meth and crack and whatever else like drugs that people are on. You know, the story's about it. And, of course, addicts get together and they tell about all the good parts, the highlights of it all, especially if they're in rehab. So let's say they get out and they make some friends. They make some friends with a kid that was on meth. They make some friends with a kid that was on heroin. And they all get clean for a little bit. And then kid that was on heroin falls off. And, well, they go and hang out. But now the guy's doing heroin. So now your kid who was just smoking weed, he knows all about it. And now he's doing it. It's like sending someone to prison who got convicted of like st- like stealing something, like stealing a pair of shoes and then putting them in prison with people who are like arm robbers and money launderers. You're going to learn a thing or two and you're going to find out how much bigger and better they can do it than you. And is there a time where rehab makes sense? Yeah, if you're one of those people already. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you're well acquainted with all your, you know, your your rocks, your crystals, your pills, your powders, anyways, then yeah, you'll be fine. I mean, if you too are a, you know, if you're an armed robber, might as well put you with other armed robbers and money launderers and things like that. You'll fit in there. You're not going to learn too much new. What do you think of drug testing in private schools? I don't believe in it. Why not? What's the point? To try to curb the druggie or point out problems or just as a deterrent? The kids that should have gotten kicked out, they keep little bottles of peas under their scrotums. Or not peas, pee, physical urine under their scrotum. So it's good war- like bodily temperature. And they get it from someone else who pees clean. And those are the kids that end up or are on you know, heroin and meth or smoke crack and all that that are in school. So the kids that end up getting caught is innocent old like... Mary Beth, who smoked marijuana at that party last weekend, and she just got drug tested, and now she failed. I don't think it's uh, it's it's worth it. Then it also get you get into the problem of the schools, where okay, well, Joanna failed her drug test, but her family donates a hundred thousand dollars a year, and now Jake he failed his. So Jana, Joanna failed her drug test for cocaine. Jake fails his for weed. Jake's family donates no money. Joanna's donates a hundred thousand a year. Well, that wouldn't be good business if we let go of Joanna, is it? When you think about being a parent, what's the most frightening thing that comes to your mind? A kid being a drug addict. Because, I mean, also, too, being in my position, I feel that it is as if it's a genetic trait. And I've seen that within my family web. So, to me, it's unfair that, well, I knew this was going to happen. And here you are, and you're suffering from it. I'm in recovery and I've been clean since January 4th, 2014. So I spent a little bit of time doing this whole recovery thing. And I don't know, I would I would hate to bring a child into this earth and then know that this is a, uh, a possibility for them. I mean, compounded with the fact, too, that I know 
dead 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, people in their 20, 21, 22, 24, 25, 26. Up, I mean, I know a lot of dead people from this, and a lot of them come from families where people, where mom, dad, or some uncle or something is to a drug addict or alcoholic. Most of them don't come from these you know, picturesque families that, oh, it was a shock that you know John was on heroin. We never saw this kind of thing coming. Nobody in our family has this problem. Like Usually it's just not the case for any of these kids, any of these families, including mine. So it's just like knowing that it is a possibility seems unfair. Is there anything you want to say directly to parents who are listening? Yes, and it has to do with drugs. So parents need to also be educated, but like properly educated. Like I think if parents are going to sit down and have a talk with their kids about why they shouldn't go do ecstasy, they need to thoroughly do their research. They need to understand what exactly it affects, what it is, what happens on your come up, what happens while it's happening, when you're coming down, why you feel like hell the next day, what to do to curb it, what that does long term. And, you know, and what that does from continued usage, methods of being able to do it, what that's like. I don't think any parent has any. I think that's also another reason, too, why kids don't listen to their parents. It's just like, well, obviously, you don't really know what you're talking about, about, like, why I shouldn't do a whole lot of this. Like, you, you haven't once explained why, you know, why this is so bad for me. Kids need proof. They need evidence. Do you think it helps for parents to share their own experience that they may have had with drugs or alcohol? I think it depends what it is, who the parent is. If you've got really some compelling stuff to say, yes. But <laughs> otherwise, I think there's plenty of parents out there that are like, but I think a lot of parents go about it inappropriately. So, you know, why well, I, I smoked my fair share of doobies in college, but I just don't get why you're acting like this. I just don't get why you won't stop doing cocaine. I think a lot of parents do that. They try to make it appear like they understand without having reason or evidence or experience in understanding. So really the bottom line is the parents need to educate themselves so they can then educate their children so they're coming from a place of reality. Yeah, exactly. Because what sounds scary to a kid is so, hey, all right, here's what alcohol is. What alcohol does to your body is a central nervous system depressant. So what this means, it slows all your motor functions, your breathing, your heart rate, your cognitive ability. That's the first thing it affects. So when it affects your cognitive ability, these are all the things that tend to happen down the line. Uh, a lot of people have had this experience on it. This is what you need to be careful for. Because, be careful with it because of it. It also does this. It affects you intestinally this way. Because that really sucks for the kid that doesn't know that you shouldn't take an anti-inflammatory and go drink a whole lot. But no one ever told him that the reason that Jake has such a bad stomach ache because he's internally bleeding right now, you know, and it's you can't trust the schools to do it. You sure as hell can't trust your kids' friends. Should parents be sitting down talking about this? Yeah, because no one else will. The whole fear hasn't worked. Look at the U.S. crime rates and incarceration rates for everything from the amount of violence that there is in this country to the amount of gun ownership. It's insane. It makes no sense at all. They both go up on an upward scale with each other. The amount of, you know, drug use, our incarcerated, our, you know, incarcerated population. It, everything that they, the more fear that we try to put into people, the more things go haywire. But the more they educate, the things go better. People are, are grossly misinformed. I mean, there's a good friend of mine who just became a registered nurse the other day was not informed on the fact that you cannot die from an opiate from opiate withdrawal. He was under the impression that you could. This is a nurse, a certified registered nurse. 
thinking you can die from opiate withdrawal. And his dad's a doctor. His dad's an anesthesiologist. Also did not know that you could not die from opiate withdrawal. So it's like, if our if our trained professionals don't even know that you can't die from opiate withdrawal, I don't trust a single parent to tell their kids about opiates or other drugs out there. But the opiate epidemic in America is a product of pills. Because all these pills started coming out, all these opioids. Things that are, I mean, seemingly not that bad for you. I mean, for Vicodin and, and uh, then Oxycontin, then Roxy, then Roxy started coming out. And then, you know, we started getting dilated and all this other stuff that, um, I mean, the pill in itself doesn't seem that scary. It doesn't have as much negative connotation behind it. And so as kids start doing these pills and it's for here, it's $30 a Roxy. And so you're doing one a day. But no one tells these kids, yeah, you're going to get a really mean tolerance. And so then two weeks later, they're doing three a day. Two months later, they're doing 12 a day. And now they're spending almost $400 a day to get high. Well, you just most people just can't keep that up for very long. That's a whole lot of money. <laughs> so you go to heroin. You spend one quarter of the money, and you get way higher. The reason it's like it is here... So we've had Oxycontin in this country for probably about 15 years. Then Roxy's came out a couple years later. These pills have been floating around for a long time. There's plenty of grown adults right now with kids in normal lives and office jobs that did their fair share of Roxy's back in the day. But it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal until they started getting cracked down on. So when here comes the fear, the fear comes into play. The war on drugs kicks back up. They crack down heavily on these pills and all these doctors that were prescribing them that they dubbed pill mills. So they crack down all these pill mills. Anytime the demand goes up and supply goes down, price skyrockets. I mean, that's just business one-on-one. So in any time that something is expensive, people desire it. Like cocaine. Cocaine's pretty cool. It's really not as great as people say it is. But it's not the cheapest drug. So there's a glamour behind it. It's cooler. That's like, oh, okay, well, we have these pills that are $30 a pill. The ecstasy you bought was $5. What is more luxurious? What is? This is a Louis Vuitton handbag of pills right now that I'm taking. There's more status, it's okay. And in any time that something costs more money, it's okay. People care more about their exotic vacation to the Italian countryside. No one cares that you got to go, you know, to some national park. They care that you got to go to the Italian countryside and it's it's that kind of thing. So the the demands there and the acceptability is there, especially if it's like, oh well it's thirty dollars a pill, I can't take these all the time. So then all these people got hooked. It really was just a a gradual thing of, well these are cool, they're expensive. The I feel great. Dude, you got to try one of these. Oh, my God, I feel great, too. All right, now I want to talk about when is it time to kick a kid out. And I have heard employers say and parents and grandparents say, well, I can't just kick them out. They'd have nowhere to live. Sure you can. Why not? So, I mean, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about basically that someone has very little chance of getting sober unless they've reached a sufficient bottom. It's it's pretty ideal if you're a drug addict to have a place to stay, ability to eat food, and have someone pay for all your drugs. So to be removed from that situation. So there's no incentive to get well. No, it's the perfect setup. What more could you possibly want? I heard about some grandparents that you told who were helping to support their grandson financially, who they suspected was using drugs to cut the child off. And they did, and it turns out that because of that, everything was taken away from this kid. He had nowhere else to go. He got clean and sober. Yeah, I mean, the money, and honestly, a money or a sexual skill set is imperative to funding your drug addiction. 
then what about a parent who says, well, I don't want my child to be a prostitute. I'd rather keep them home where I can monitor them. People have to go through what, uh, what they have to go through. And for some people, like an ex-girlfriend of mine, it is, you know, prostituting yourself, then, you know, three abortions later, and then, you know, going back to it. And then it, some people go through what they have to go through. Some people die. And that's the sad part. That is the sad part. The fact that if you suspect your kid is an addict, go buy the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and read it. You'll know after that if they are, because, I mean, there's no... There's no better description available than that. And it'll, it'll talk about every little piece. And, and it goes over the, you know, stories of multiple different types of addicts. Because everybody's different. I mean, uh, there's a kid I went to rehab with that he was an all-star baseball player, all-star wrestler. One of the absolute smartest people I've ever met. I mean, he was a, a genius in real life. He was a computer genius. He was musically a genius. I mean, he was just the, the most talented person I've ever met, smartest person I've ever met. But he was addicted to heroin. He was 20 years old, and he got his girlfriend pregnant, and she had mentioned getting an abortion. He convinced her to keep it because he, he wanted to take on that responsibility. He was ready for that kind of thing. I mean, he was really uh, an outstanding person, but he was addicted to heroin. And everyone, I mean, he, he came from a family of six, and everyone was shocked. No one in his family knew that he was addicted to heroin. Granted, they were very churchy folk and very, you know, kept to them. I don't know if kept themselves the right word, but in a very insulated community. But none of his friends knew. He hit it so perfectly that nobody knew. And so that's why it's hard to say what what to look for. But I'll say for things like, I mean, for someone on it, actively on drugs. So for opiates, I mean, the biggest giveaway for a lot of people is the eyes. And it's it's hard to explain until you've seen it, but there's a... There's a look that people have that there's either life in them and there's life not in them. And I got to see it with him shortly before he died. And I've heard about people talking about it with me. And I've seen it with other people, too. There's like a look of just a present being existing in that body opposed to when they're high, there's not that being there. So what happened to that person who was so brilliant? Oh, they died. They're, they died three weeks after rehab in, a, in the parking lot of a trashy restaurant after he had just met his heroin dealer and picked up. So... But I guess so, so with opiates, your pupils are small. They're like pinpricks. Like they're tiny. Usually there's like it, speech will be slower and it'll be lower like this. Usually with opiates too, it flushes the skin color to almost a sort of like, I mean, if you see there, this is kind of intricate, but if the breathing patterns are slower, if they just move slower and if they're just randomly falling asleep, doing something like eating, like if they're eating and falling asleep. And just because someone's eating and falling asleep doesn't mean they're on opiates. It just, it could mean that they're tired, but nodding off, as they call it, where it's, I mean, a complete inability to stay awake. Uh, well, I mean, one of the biggest telltale signs of someone on um, heavy opiates are pretty much all the combination of those things. And the reason for all that being is the fact that opiates do slow down every function of your body so much, even to the point of letting light into your eyes. That's why, you know, you get the pinpoint pupils, you know, the more flushed skin tone. And then for things like amphetamines, I guess for like cat or cocaine or meth, the pupils are very large and same with ecstasy too. Oh, and if someone's on hallucinogens, um, but the pupils are very large. Their speech will be very quick. They don't sleep. They may be convinced that the government's hacked into their bank account, that there's, if they talk about shadow people, that they're hearing voices. If, they've, if they're starting to sound like a schizophrenic person and their pupils are real wide and they're talking real fast, they're on amphetamines, they've been on them for a while. 
I mean, another thing to look forward to is always track marks, and track marks aren't always in the ditches of the arms. They'll be in the ditches of the legs, between toes, on your feet, on your hands especially. I mean, there's uh, some people even on their neck as well. You know, drugs like heroin aren't restricted to using a needle. You can also smoke it off tinfoil. So if you go into your kid's room and you find a whole roll of tinfoil in a straw, they're not making science creations. They're smoking drugs. And how do you feel about that? Let's say a parent is suspicious that a kid is using drugs. Do you think they have the right to go in and search for something? I mean, if your kid pays rent, no. But odds are your kid doesn't pay rent. So, yeah, you're the landlord. <laughs> they live there for free. I think if your kid is in jeopardy. But, I mean, if, you, if you're a crazy parent and you have a pretty good kid, but you have to... I don't agree in reading their diary or their journal or whatever kids do this these days. If you open up their laptop and their Facebook's up there, I don't agree on going through their messages. I don't agree on going through their phone or things like that. But yeah, at that point, uh, their door's open (laughs) and they're not home and you're suspicious. Go for it. But also don't go in not knowing what to look for. That's, That's a big part of it. Do your research before you go in. Know exactly what you are looking for. If you're looking for foggy-looking jewelry bags, if you're looking for needles or syringes, spoons that are burnt on the bottom or bent, aluminum foil, straws that are cut, surfaces that have a weird powder on them, rolling papers, or there's a whole bunch of things. If you really want to go find out about these things, go to your local store that sells drug paraphernalia and learn what they are. Troy, thank you for being willing to come forward. Talk to us, being so candid and being so forthright about what you've seen work and what you've seen that doesn't work. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, it's difficult as parents to listen to, to learn, and to educate ourselves because truly we're the first line of defense. Our kids aren't going to learn about drugs and alcohol and sex at school. They're going to learn about it from the internet or from their peers if we don't sit them down and talk to them adult to adult. You've been listening to Daring Parenting, and if you'd like to know more, you can go to daringparenting.com. This is Lisa Henderson, and thanks for joining us.